You're listening to the free, abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For August 9th, 2017, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. In our mini-series on climate science so far, we've had a number of scientists share their views about the changes that could come to our planet, climate, and society as a consequence of increasing greenhouse gas emissions in the atmosphere. But how much can we really know about the amount of emissions we're going to release over the next eight decades, given the uncertainties about how much society and technology will evolve in the future? What are the worst-case scenarios we can imagine, and how relevant are they? When we talk to the public about climate change scenarios, should we emphasize the uncertainty in our models and in our future human actions in order to present the most defensible and transparent science? Or should we be emphasizing the worst-case outcomes in hope that it will overcome inertia and motivate people to take action now? For that matter, when we hear about the scenarios used in climate change modeling, how well do we really understand what they mean? For example, when you hear about the worst-case warming scenario known as RCP 8.5, do you know that it assumes a tenfold increase in global coal consumption through the end of this century? Or that the estimates of future fossil fuel use are, at some level, based on data that is as much as a century old? How are we to square scenarios like these with contemporary reality in which we see various countries turning away from coal, halting the construction of new coal plants, and turning to renewables because wind and solar have become the cheapest options for generating power in much of the world? In fact, we might ask if any of the scenarios for emissions and climate change actually portray what we might recognize as reality. In this episode, we're going to dive way down into the guts of the emission scenarios used in the climate models represented in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Assessments, or IPCC, reports, and try to understand what they're actually saying and what it all means for achieving our policy goals and decarbonizing our energy systems. And to help us navigate the subject, one which, I must say, I'm not even convinced that a lot of climate scientists really understand, we're going to talk today with none other than Justin Ritchie, the producer of this podcast, without whom the Energy Transition Show would not exist. Justin has a wide-ranging interest in sustainability and has produced a lot of interesting material on the subject, including 95 wonderful episodes of the Extra Environmentalist podcast that he and his co-host Seth Moserkatz have produced starting in 2010. In fact, it is through that podcast that I first discovered Justin. I became a big fan of their show, which ultimately led to the production of this one. Justin is now a PhD candidate, and this episode revolves around part of his thesis, which explores the underlying science on climate change. And it's a real pleasure to finally have him on the show. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Justin, to the Energy Transition Show. Thanks so much, Chris. Great to be on. So, yeah, I really want to just dive right in and start talking about your thesis. So 
In your recent paper in the journal Energy Economics, which is part of your PhD thesis, you took a deep dive into the future of coal in the global energy system and how it has played a big role in framing our worst-case scenarios for climate change since the first IPC assessment in the 1990s. And by tracing back through the chain of accumulated research on which those scenarios are built, which... I guess it shouldn't surprise me, but not too many people have done that. And when I did it, I found it just incredibly frustrating and difficult to even figure out where the data was coming from. But by tracing back through that chain, you found some pretty surprising assumptions embedded in them, assumptions that have been accepted for so long that nobody even questions them anymore. But in fact, you found that the world has changed a great deal since some of that original research was done. And although the assumptions might have been reasonable at the time, they are really questionable today global oil demand growth really significantly slowed down right around the time of the financial crash and the point at which we had the first big oil price spike in 2008. So this notion that we're suddenly going to go back to a steep trajectory of oil demand growth and get to 150 million barrels a day by 2040 seems really unrealistic to me, let alone the fact that it's suddenly going to then crash and be replaced by coal when coal use itself is declining in most of the developed world. And there are some very serious questions being raised about the long-standing assumptions that the developing world is going to use a lot of coal as well, just because renewables have become so much cheaper than coal, especially in places like China and India. So why is no one questioning <laughs> this scenario? Yeah, well... The reason I say it's interesting that the coal acceleration kicks in after peak oil at this really high level around mid-century gets back to the question raised in this energy economics article on the 1,000 gigaton coal question. And that concept is one of a coal backstop energy supply. And it really dates itself back to the 1970s when there was tremendous anxiety during the 1973, 1979 oil crises. There were a lot of energy studies that were taking place at the time. And a lot of the conventions that we still use in energy modeling to this day started with the energy modeling that grew out of collaborations of engineers and economists during the modeling work that tried to address, hey, are we going to run out of oil? And if so, what do we do? And the question always looked at, well, how are we going to support this level of demand? And there were these massive numbers of coal resources in the United States, in the Soviet Union, in China. And the answer was, well, if we run out of oil, we'll do coal-based sin fuels. And that's the idea of the coal backstop that is shown explicitly in the RCP 8.5 scenario. But it's actually embedded in a lot of the scenarios that are produced by the models that create these integrated outlooks for economies and society and greenhouse gas emissions and the energy system of having this vast, limitless 3,000-year supply of coal that we rely on to support high levels of demand for energy, regardless of the scenario. In fact, even part of the problem is not that RCP 8.5 uses a lot of coal, but even the mitigation scenarios published in the IPCC assessment in Working Group 3 use a lot of coal. If you look at the original RCP 2.6, the ultimate mitigation pathway 
to keep warming to only 1.5 degrees this century, it still uses all coal reserves. And that's because of assumptions around carbon capture sequestration and its availability and the general concept that coal is this cheap, limitless supply. And so if we can get CCS to be economic, then we can rely on this coal resource base still. I just got to say, this all sounds totally absurd to me. <laughs> well, I mean, look, the world has changed so radically since the 1970s. We're now talking about massively decreased oil demand going forward with the advent of electric cars. Nobody's interested in building a new coal plant anymore. We're definitely not going to burn all that coal just because it's there. We now have renewables that are cheaper than anything else in most of the major markets of the world. What are we thinking to be so interested in these scenarios that seem to be based in an ancient history that no longer applies, especially if you're talking about an economic scenario that should be driving our fuel combustion scenario? Yeah, well, the narrative of society and technology underlying 8.5 is that demand for energy is so high, we have to tap into this vast resource base of geologic coal because technological progress in all other energy technologies essentially fails. So solar, nuclear, gas, conventional oil, unconventional oil, everything else is much more limited than coal. And so this only available economic option is to transition to coal. And what you're saying about how you see that as implausible, that gets into the way that the community of researchers that create the emission scenarios think about energy resources over the long term. And so if you were to say, well, you know, look at what's going on with solar, look at what's going on with potentially EV deployment, oils at $45, $50 a barrel, and we're still talking about bullish EV forecasts, you know, that's unheard of 20 years ago. And look at the total collapse of CCS technologies that we've tried on our various coal plants. I mean, that's clearly not working. Right. But what you would have to face is an argument that, well, that is one hypothesis of what's going to happen in the energy system, and it's shaped by what's going on in this decade. And when you look out over 80 years to the year 2100, you really have to consider all possible eventualities. And if that coal exists in the ground in the form of identified resources as geologic occurrences, then are there ways technologically that we could possibly figure out how to access it in an economic way? And if that answer is maybe yes, then under the socioeconomics of extremely high demand, extremely high resource intensity, and low decarbonization in terms of a high energy intensity economy, then you end up seeing coal as the best option. So it's this kind of way of contrasting the two hypotheses for technology and society and how they're going to play out in the long run. All right. I mean, I can understand that from sort of a, an absurdly conservative, risk-averse point of view in modeling. But where is a scenario in all of this that would in any way map to what I would consider a probable future, right? Like in which there's no CCS, in which Oil demand starts to flatten out and decline starting now, in which coal demand flattens out and declines starting now, in which we do not have a massive increase in natural gas, and we do have a huge explosion in renewables because that has now become the cheapest thing worldwide or you know, will be in, in all markets within a couple of years. Like, where is the RCP that maps to that 
future. Yeah, well, so Chris, you're in Boulder, and nearby is the National Center for Atmospheric Research, NCAR, and there's several people there who are actually working on that kind of framing for future scenarios. And so, like I was saying earlier, these RCPs were just the starting point of creating these kind of abstracted emission pathways. And the team at NCAR is part of this international collaboration to create what are called Shared Socioeconomic Pathways, or SSPs. And so those SSPs are the fully detailed scenarios of an energy system that map to the different levels of radiative forcing at the end of the century. And so what you're talking about is a concept that's called SSP-1, which is basically a green growth world is what it's called, and it still leads to climate change that's above two degrees. And so by no means does taking the coal out or doubting RCP 8.5 mean that we're going to just do nothing and avoid two degrees. There's a lot of different studies that take a more hard-lined geologist approach to this question. So we can link to a few of those in the show notes, but Steve Moore in Australia he published a study in 2015 with his co-authors that looked at projections of fossil fuels by country and really considered, hey, what's the ultimate bullish scenario for unconventional oil, for coal? And he basically calculates an outlook for cumulative emissions in the ultimate bullish case that only reaches RCP6. And he says his best guess scenario ends up around RCP4.5. So something more consistent with the idea that you're putting forward. And Hmm. there have been a few other studies that take all the ultimately recoverable resource estimates and kind of do what's called a Monte Carlo analysis, where you randomly sample all the different numbers and then run that through the models that create these emission pathways. And what they found is that somewhere between RCP 4.5 and RCP 6 is where they end up with a low probability of ending up below RCP 4.5, but we're still in that range where we go above 2 degrees. But the interesting thing that that study found on the likelihood of climate change pathways given uncertainty in fossil fuel resources is that the dominant factor that explains how many emissions we're going to have in kind of a baseline world is coal. More than 70% of the uncertainty in emissions could be explained by the uncertainty in the coal estimates. And so that's why my co-author and I thought it was really important to dig in deep and try to figure out what these coal reserve reports and resource reports really meant in the context of reserve resource definitions compared to oil and gas definitions. All right. Well, let's dig into that uncertainty question a little bit because, you know, even though climate modelers may understand how much uncertainty is sort of embedded in these assumptions and in these emission scenarios, I certainly have not seen the uncertainty question addressed hardly at all in journalistic coverage about climate change. And in a paper that you sent me written by the late Stephen Schneider of Stanford University, there's a figure showing how uncertainty multiplies from the underlying emission scenarios on up through the impact assessments, like at each stage of the chain between an emission scenario and its impact assessment, the uncertainty grows a little more each time. And given this uncertainty explosion, it was called, how much confidence can we actually place on the impact assessments and the climate projections that we base on these emissions pathways? Yeah, so the challenge is we don't know how much coal or oil or gas we're going to burn in 2070 or 2080 or even what the technology is necessarily going to look like. 
And then given a certain level of emissions, we don't know exactly how the carbon cycle is going to respond. Climate change is this dynamic interplay between positive and negative feedbacks that lead to more and less warming given different Earth system responses. So we can look at the past using paleoclimate data, and we can develop these different hypotheses about how it's all going to respond in the future. But each level that we multiply it through, because we're using these RCP scenarios and other emission scenarios as the inputs that go into the more complex Earth system models that really understand the physical and ecological responses to warming, that level of uncertainty grows. And so that's why it's really important to consider whether these high scenarios should be ruled out or whether they're still a plausible worst case scenario. Because if you can constrain that initial series of emission uncertainties to some degree, then it helps to focus in on the things that are more likely to happen. And then you can rule out certain prospects. And even if RCP 8.5 shouldn't be used anymore, even if the most bullish possible outlook for unconventional oil and oil shale and whatever you can imagine in terms of methane hydrate harvesting does not lead to RCP 8.5, then we still have something like RCP 6 or RCP 7 as the worst case scenario, which is still a really terrible world to live in. No one wants to get there. And so there might be uncertainties at every stage of the process, but it's hard to express that in a nuanced way because it comes into the challenge of developing any forecast or any projection, which is you sit down and you talk with a journalist who has a short timeline, who wants to get to the core of the story. And if you say, well, you know, the impacts might be between bad and really horrible, you're going to slowly get distilled down into trying to produce kind of a best guessed answer. And that dynamic plays out in so many ways in communicating the uncertainty. And so Steve Schneider was one of those researchers who focused as a very experienced climate change researcher on how to communicate that uncertainty in a constructive way. Because when you reduce the uncertainty, you're really not improving the broader understanding of climate change science in the general public. And that leads to a lot of other downstream effects that are very difficult to get across in regards to the basics of climate change science. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are usually at least an hour long. Subscribers also enjoy other features, like our new transcript control, which allows you to search or click in the text or the audio player to jump to that point in the audio and the transcript. Subscribers also have access to our extensive show notes, with links to all the research resources and news items for each episode. In the future, we hope to offer even more value to our subscribers. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and join. Annual subscriptions are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are also available. It's like subscribing to your favorite magazine or newspaper, but we prefer to think of it as buying us a pint once a month just as a way of saying thanks. And if you're an educator thinking that you'd like to make the Energy Transition Show available to your students, just drop an email to me, chris at energytransitionshow.com, and we'll get you set up. 
Several university classes have already taken advantage of our unbeatable educational discount, and we'd love to make the show available to more smart young students interested in energy transition and climate change. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. So please join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, Energy Transition. And now let's move on to some recent news items. Item 1. As expected, and as previewed in earlier episodes of this podcast, a 2,200-square-mile piece of ice shelf known as Larsen Sea has finally broken off the ice cap over Antarctica and is now drifting and starting to break up in the Weddell Sea. The trillion-ton piece of ice, the size of Delaware, will not directly cause rising sea levels because it was already floating before it broke off but it will no longer be able to hold back glaciers on land as it has for millennia, and if those continue to march toward the sea, they will increase sea levels. The question, as ever, is how much. Another glacier in West Antarctica, known as Thwaites, may be in jeopardy now, and if melted, we could be looking at a future of sea levels rising as much as 10 feet. And if all of the ice over Antarctica melted, which I will note is not a scenario that anyone takes terribly seriously at this point, sea levels could rise as much as 220 feet. Our future will be largely determined by the degree of sea level rise we're facing, and as ever, what we need is better science. See Jeff Goodell's article linked in the show notes for more details. Item 2. On the other end of the planet, a Finnish icebreaker has traversed the Arctic from Vancouver, Canada to Greenland's capital city. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.